This is Pastor Rick Bino from Hocassin Baptist Church, and you are listening to From Shadow to Substance, a sermon series presented in the spring of 2008. Today's introductory message comes from Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Good morning. Thanks for joining us today. We're going to start a new series of teachings today from one of the more challenging books of the New Testament. One writer says that we claim to be people of the Word, but in reality we are people of only parts of the Word, because there's entire sections of the Word that we tend to overlook. And interestingly, uh, the book of Hebrews is one of those parts of the New Testament that we tend to overlook. If I were to say right now, pin you to a corner and say, quote for me a passage from the book of Hebrews, or I'm going to take your money, most of you would get out your wallets. Because it's difficult for us to even pinpoint some passages from Hebrews. Now, we can think of some, perhaps. You may be familiar with um, the the so-called Hall of Fame of Faith from Hebrews chapter 11, with the line, without faith it is impossible to please God. That might be something that's familiar to you from Hebrews. You may remember Hebrews 13.8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Another pretty common passage from Hebrews. Or if you've been participating in one of our women's ministries called the Let Us Gathering, you may know that the name of that, Let Us, comes from Hebrews 10.24. Let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. But what I've found is that even if we are familiar with those verses, oftentimes we don't know that they came from the book of Hebrews. We know they're in the Bible somewhere. And so I think that this this set of teachings that we have prepared for you over the next couple months will be helpful in making us mature in an area of Scripture where we tend to be a little immature. So Pastor John and I are looking forward to this series of sermons that are going to carry us from now throughout the spring uh, into the month of June. We've entitled the series, From Shadow to Substance. In a moment, I'll explain the reason for that title. But we've purposely put this sermon series in the spring because it is a sermon series, and it's a book of revival, and a book of renewal, and a book of new life, and a book of moving forward. And with the newness of spring and the newness of, of, the, of nature around us, we hope that the series of messages that you will be hearing during the spring would inspire us to be spiritually renewed and spiritually made awake and revitalized. So that is our hope during the course of the next couple months and our time in the book of Hebrews. Now, to give you a sense of what I mean by from shadow to substance, I have brought something to show you. Now, this is risky. This is risky that I brought this because the the value of what I'm about to show you is so immense that some people would call it folly even to bring it. But I trust you not to steal off with it. Because what I have here is a drawing that many of you may find familiar. It's by Pablo Picasso. And it's his rendering of Don Quixote. Now what you might not know in just looking at this rendering this picture, this piece of art by Pablo Picasso, is that of the last 30 most expensive pieces of art ever sold, Picasso had eight of them. 
Eight of the most highly priced and highly valued pieces of art are by Pablo Picasso. They've been selling between $50 million and $104 million, and I have a Picasso. I don't need a 401k or B or J or whatever letters are there. I don't need an IRA. I've got a Picasso. And I don't even, you know what, I'm humble. I don't even need it to fetch 50 million. 20 million, 30 million would be fine. So don't rush the stage and steal my Picasso. Because my whole future and my whole life is invested in that piece of art. That is my $30 million future, and I brought it with no security just for you to see. Now, if I were telling you all of this in a conversation as friends, and I was telling you about my life plan, and I showed you my Picasso, I would hope that you would love me enough to tell me a hard truth, that sitting across the table from me, you'd reach across and you'd pat my hand and you'd say, Rick... I have some bad news for you. When they say that a Picasso is worth between 40 and 104 million dollars, they don't mean your Picasso is worth 40 million to 100 million dollars. Matter of fact, your Picasso is probably not worth 40 dollars. It's unlikely it's worth four dollars. And then you'd go on to explain to me the difference between a replica and the original. You'd go on to explain to me the difference between a copy and the real thing. You would go on to explain to me, I hope, that the real thing is worth far more than the copy. Now, the copy has its value. It has some beauty involved in it. You could even study some of Picasso's skills in looking at the copy, but it has very little value because it is not the original. So if I had this here, and I had somehow managed to have the original Picasso piece of art next to it, and I said I could only keep one, which one should I keep? You would say, keep the original and get rid of the copy. Don't get rid of the original in favor of the copy. I want you to keep that illustration in mind when you look at these verses from Hebrews. The writer of Hebrews, when looking back at the old temple and the old Jewish priest system, says that the Jewish priests of old served at a, in a sanctuary that was a copy or a shadow of what is to come, of what is in heaven, sorry. And then consider Hebrews 10.1, the law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. What we'll discover through the book of Hebrews is a multifaceted and multi-layered argument that shows the infinitely different value of the copy or the pattern versus the real thing. The infinitely different value of the substance versus the shadow. Though the shadow or the copy may have some value, just like this print It does not compare to the value that would be given to the real piece of art. And so we do not ignore the real thing in favor of the copy. And what we'll be discovering in the book of Hebrews is that the tabernacle, 
the altar, the sacrifices, the law, the old covenant, the priesthood, that all of these things were copies, they were patterns, they were shadows of what was to come. And what was to come and what had come was Jesus. And all of these other things poured their symbolism and poured their imagery into Jesus. That Jesus was the real thing, that Jesus was the substance that all of these other things pointed to. And what we'll discover in the book of Hebrews is that these were Jewish, Christ- Jewish people who had become Christians. So they were Jewish Christians kind of caught between the newness of Christ and their traditions that they had so long followed. And what was happening is that they were falling back into their traditions, back into the sacrifices and the law, and, and back to the copy. And they were tossing out the real thing in favor of the copy. And so the writer of Hebrews spends a lot of time saying, don't go back to the copy when you have access to the real thing. Because it's the real thing that has value. You now have Christ. Christ has come. Christ has brought salvation. He is of incalculable worth. Because he has arrived, do not go back to the thing that pointed to him when you can go to him himself. And so the overarching theme of the book of Hebrews will be an encouragement for us to make sure we're moving from shadow to substance in Jesus Christ. And so we begin in Hebrews chapter 1. Appropriately enough, we'll start in verse 1. So if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to turn there. We'll be looking at our Bibles every week. If you own a Bible, it should accompany you to church. Okay? Just want to establish that. If you own one, bring it. If you don't own one, we have a stack of them out there. You can walk out with one today, and then you will own one. But the encouragement is is that you will bring your Bibles with you. We study the Bible. We want to look at the Bible, and I'd love for you to have your Bibles to look at. So please, bring them along, and we'll study them together, because as I've often said, we are under the authority not of my word, but of God's word. And by having them with you, it reminds us all of whose authority we are under. So let's look at Hebrews. By the way, if you didn't bring one today, you don't have to be ashamed. Some of you are like, oh boy. Next week, you didn't know, but next week, bring it along. Hebrews 1, verse 1. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. We have a dramatic start to the book of Hebrews. It's like a rocket launch into the theology of Christ. The writer of Hebrews starts off in just these short paragraphs by shooting out different ways that Christ was superior or is superior to whatever they had experienced in the past. Notice that he compares in the first three words. He says, in the past, and then later he says, but now in these last days he has spoken to us through Christ. Now, if you're a quick thinker, 
you might immediately question, well, what is it that the writer means by in these last days? Because if this book was written, let's say 2,000 years ago or so, and here we are in 2008, that means that some 720,000 days have passed since the writer wrote that we're in the last days. And you might say, well, that doesn't sound like a very good calculation of the last days. But that's because we misunderstand the idea of the last days often to mean something numerical, like he's counting down the final few minutes. But when the New Testament, for the most part, uses the phrase the last days, it is speaking theologically. It is saying that in God's salvation plan, we are not in the first part of it, we are in the last days of it. In other words, when Christ came, we began the end or the last part of the salvation story. There is nothing else after Christ. Christ is the crux of the story. And Christ ushered in the last part of the salvation plan. Now think about it this way. When they were in the the early days, there was all these symbols for Christ that we'll discover in Hebrews. Sacrifices and priests and tabernacles and temples. All of these things were in the early days pointing to Christ. But now that Christ has come, we're in the last days. Christ does not point to something else. You with me? Christ is the thing that was being pointed to. And so when the writer of Hebrews says, we are in the last days, he's saying, Christ has come, and we now live in the reign and the authority of Christ and of Christ's work in our lives. And so like the original hearers, we are living in the last days of God's salvation story. The writer of Hebrews is going to argue that not only are we in the last days, but we are in the better days because we understand and have been given the privilege of knowing Christ. And he emphasizes this with these six real quick bullet points explaining the authority and the supremacy of Christ in these first verses. And I'll list them on the screen there, but they're right from the passage. He says that Christ is greater than the prophets. And the prophets, of course, were held in high regard. And so he starts off right away by saying, Christ has done what the prophets could never do. Though they spoke the word, they were not the word themselves. And Christ comes with greater and speaks with greater authority and completeness. With the prophets, the word of God came sporadically at different times and in different places. It was incomplete. But with Christ, God's word is made complete. He says, secondly, that Christ holds a position as both creator and heir of all things. The prophets were just spokesmen. They lived an allotted span of time. But Jesus is the eternal son. He goes on to say in verse 3 that the son or Jesus is the exact representation of God's being. And that word representation is the Greek word character, from which we get the English word character. (laughs) A little Greek for you. Which means that Jesus reproduces the exact character of the Father, which is why when Jesus walked the earth, he was able to say, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Fourthly, Jesus sustains all things by his powerful word. As opposed to a God that comes, created the world, and left, Jesus is involved and is active in his creation. He sustains it, is oversees it, and is involved in it. 
And then the writer talks about Jesus providing the purification for our sins. That this hope that the prophets had talked about of salvation and of redemption, this hope that they had told people to look forward to, but they themselves could not accomplish. Jesus accomplishes what no prophet or preacher or sage or wise man himself could ever accomplish. Something that no one in the past, present, or future could ever accomplish except Jesus, and that is the purification of sins. Because of his perfect life and death and resurrection, Jesus provides something that no one else in the history of the world could have accomplished. As we sang this morning, humanity is broken, we are sick, we are in need of healing, and Jesus is the remedy. And then finally, the writer of Hebrews says, Jesus sits down at the right hand of the Father. The supreme honor is given to the triumphant Jesus. So in these rapid-fire phrases, the writer of Hebrews starts off right from the beginning saying, Jesus is the real thing. He is not the copy, but he is the, the real thing and the thing that we should be focusing on and moving toward because of his superiority, particularly over the prophets, but later we'll learn of his superiority over the angels and over the sacrificial system and over the priesthood, that Jesus is the superior choice over all of these things. Now, you may have noticed that all along here, I've been saying this phrase, the writer of Hebrews. The writer of Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews. And you might be saying, well, who wrote Hebrews? That's an excellent question. The trouble is, we don't know the answer. Throughout the New Testament, there are books of the New Testament called epistles. And that's another word for letters. So we have letters written from an apostle to a church or to a person. So John wrote some, Peter wrote some, Paul wrote some. And they all start, with the exception of Hebrews, in roughly the same way. In the same way that we sort of have a standard way of opening a letter, D or something, they had a standard way of opening a letter. Their standard way was the writer would introduce himself, and then the writer would greet his recipients. So you can look through and you'll find stuff like, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to Timothy. He introduces himself, and he introduces his audience. And that's the rough form of almost all the epistles. That is not, obviously, how Hebrews begins. And there's no identification of the author anywhere throughout the book of Hebrews. He never identifies himself. And so we don't really know who wrote the book of Hebrews. Now, tradition tells us that it is Paul, and there is good evidence content-wise that it might be Paul because much of what's taught is similar to what it's taught elsewhere in Paul's letters. We've already can make one noteworthy connection. If you remember back to our Colossians study, there was a verse there in 2.17 where Paul refers to the religious festivals, and in referring to these religious festivals, he calls them shadows of the things that were to come, but that the reality is found in Christ. A very similar mindset to what we discover in Hebrews. But since we don't know for sure if Paul wrote Hebrews, I'll refer to the writer as the writer of Hebrews. But if you want to insert Paul there, that's fine. Of course, in the same way that we lack the identification of the author, we also lack an identification of who it is he's writing to. It doesn't say to the church of Colossae or the church of Corinth or the church of Ephesus like many of the others do. So there's a little bit of ambiguity in that as well. But in looking through the book of Hebrews, it's pretty clear the type of people he's writing to, even if we don't know the exact location. Because of his emphasis on the Old Testament law and the apparent problem that the people had with going back to the Old Testament, it's pretty clear that these were uh, Jewish converts to Christianity. 
and that these Jewish converts, as I said earlier, were sort of stuck between and tempted to go back to their Jewish roots as opposed to moving forward with Christ. Now, we don't quite know where these Jewish um, Christians would have lived because they were spread all over the Roman Empire. They would have certainly lived in the Roman Empire, but we're not sure if they were necessarily in Jerusalem or if they were an enclave of Jewish believers elsewhere. But it does seem to be Jewish believers that the writer of Hebrews is writing to. Now, we may well ask at this point, why is it, if Jesus is all these great things we just talked about, if the writer says, oh, look at all these things, these great things that Jesus is, why is it that the audience that he is writing to in this book, why would they be tempted to move backwards, back into their Judaism, if Christ was all these great things? Well, we want to close by pondering that question, because we might very well ask that same question of us. We might very well ask ourselves, why is it, if Christ is all of these great things, do I sometimes find myself sort of shrinking back away from him? If Christ is all these great things, why do I not follow him with more energy and more passion and more vigor? Why doesn't my life change more greatly by my Christianity? We might well ask that same question of ourselves, and I'm going to ask us to do that. Because I don't want us to get into this mindset that, oh, well, this book was written to Jewish Christians that are struggling with going back to Judaism. I'm not a Jewish Christian, and I'm not going to go back to Judaism, so I guess my work here is done. Because in reality, the things that are, that are tempting them back to the old are often the same things that, attempt, that tempt us to go backwards as well. And as we've talked about, Hebrews is a book about moving forward with Christ. And so let me give you just list for you three of the reasons that the Jewish Christians may have been moving backwards and why we might sometimes move backwards away from Christ as well. The first reason is that they were caught up in the power of the past. Secondly, they may have been caught up in fear. And thirdly, perhaps they were simply immature. And any particular one of these reasons might be one of the reasons that we find ourselves not moving forward to the real thing, but kind of slinking backwards. We just finished celebrating Easter, and some of you probably have some Easter traditions some things you like to do every year that sort of have become traditions in your family. But the funny thing happens with many traditions, and that is eventually they die out. Or eventually you can't do the tradition anymore. Maybe as your kids grow, traditions that used to work don't work anymore because your kids are getting older. For example, we have a tradition of snuggling with our kids before they go to bed. We snuggle with them and pray with them. That tradition will end. All right? When my son starts becoming 13, 14, 15, 16 years old, having dad come and snuggle is probably not a tradition that will continue. And it's interesting because even now, as the tradition starts to end, there's some sadness in my wife and I that it will be ending. Every once in a while, our daughter, usually we snuggle, as I said, but every once in a while, our daughter will just sort of walk through the living room and say, all right, I'm feeling tired, I'm going to bed, and up she'll go. And we'll go, oh, but the snuggle... Aren't we going to snuggle? So we sort of have the sadness when traditions end. Well, imagine that the tradition that's ending wasn't just your family's tradition. And it wasn't just your parents' or your grandparents' tradition. But it was a tradition that your people had followed for as far back as they had been remembered as a people. 
For thousands and thousands of years, there had been priests and sacrifices. For thousands and thousands of years, you had followed certain aspects of the law. For thousands and thousands of years. And now you're being told that the law has been fulfilled. The symbols are fulfilled. That all of those things were, were precursors and copies and images and shadows of what was to come in Jesus. And now that Jesus is here, those traditions have new meaning. You can imagine how someone who was making that transition would have that pull because they were so used to and so fully, under, so fully immersed in their tradition that it was difficult for them to move into the reality of Christ. And so the writer of Hebrews, will come back to this again and again, will tell them, here's the reason that the old was valuable. It was valuable in, the, in this way because it pointed to Christ. So now that Christ is here, you need to move into Christ and move forward and not back. The power of the past can have a pretty strong hold on us. And it's not always because we choose to go back to the past, but sometimes we find ourselves just kind of stuck there. There's something in our past or some residue. There's some, some, some habits we'd learned, maybe even prior to becoming Christians. Some habits or some lifestyles that we were a part of prior to coming to Christ. And now that we are in Christ, we still can feel ourselves being pulled back to them. And the encouragement of Hebrews will be, don't go backward, but move forward in the power of Christ. Well, it may not be the lore of the past, but it may be some level of fear that keeps us from moving forward in Christ. The fear that came to the original readers of this sermon or this letter would have been fearful of Roman persecution. It was just starting to break out. It was coming their way. They had been hearing about it. And so there was fear that was being instilled into their community. And it's hard for us to relate to it because we are not in the same situation, so I'm not going to pretend that our fear is the same. But they were in a tough spot because, to put it simply, in the Roman Empire, Christianity was not a protected religion, and Judaism was. So when persecution came to town, if you could claim yourself to be a Jew, you would not be persecuted as opposed to if you claim yourself to be a Christian. And so you can see how difficult it may have been when they were between the copy and the real thing, the, the pull because of fear of persecution. And so later in Hebrews, the writer will give all kinds of encouragement to help them not to fear, but to endure, and to not shrink back, but to move forward. And even though we are not under anything like that kind of persecution, I think oftentimes we move back away from Christ because of fear. Some kind of anxiety. Even though the scripture calls us to live different and look different and be different, we tend to do everything we can not to look and not to feel and not to be different. Because it's not always a comfortable place to be. And sometimes it comes out in our fear of sharing Christ but other times it comes out in a lot of the ways that we spoke about in our last series about living in suburbia as a Christian. We don't want to look too different, so we sort of go with the way that everyone else looks because we fear not being what the, expected, what the culture expects of us. And so we shrink back from Christ into something lesser. And sometimes the issue is just plain immaturity. And we'll spend a good chunk of time on this when we get to it but there's a section of Hebrews where the writer just says, 
you need to grow up. He says to, he says to the Hebrews, to his audience, you've been, you've been followers of Christ long enough, you need to stop getting, all, getting um, the bottle of milk, and you need to move on to something meatier. So grow up. And that's a challenge, I think, that we can all relate to. You know, there's no point where you can say, well, I've been a Christian for this long, so I've done the Bible study thing. There's never a point where you could say, well, you know, I've been a Christian long enough, I don't need to pray anymore. Matter of fact, I find that those who mature and those whose maturity I most respect and most admire are those who say, I've been a Christian for a long time and the Word of God has never been more important than it is to me right now. Or I've been a a Christian for a long time, but there's one thing I've learned is I need to be praying more. Because a sign of maturity is that we are moving more into our relationship with Christ. Not that we feel like we've arrived and we can pull away. And we can see the problem with that if you just think of marriages. Can you imagine how your marriages would look if you said to your wife or your husband, we've been married for 10 years now, think I've learned all I can about you, think we're done, so, uh, you know, let's just not talk anymore. Right? Well, of course not. I mean, as you grow more in love and as you grow more in your relationship, as you move more forward, you discover more about one another. You don't say, I've learned enough, I'm going to stop. If you want your marriage to develop. But it's the same with Christ. So the writer of Hebrews is adamant for us. Move forward. Move forward into Christ. Don't fall back because of fear or because of immaturity or because of the past. A lot of those things represent chains that hold us back. And yet this morning we were able to sing, my chains are gone. I've been set free. And according to Hebrews, we have been set free to move away from just the pictures and images of Christ to move into the real thing. And so throughout, the writer tells us, don't give up the real Picasso art for the copy. Don't back away from the substance for the shadow. Don't gain some kind of religion but lose Jesus. And so as we close today, I want to invite us into a time of a prayer of renewal. As I said, this sermon series lines up with springtime. And so using this opening passage, I want to read to you a prayer that I encourage you to pray. And it's a prayer you can pray no matter where you are in your spiritual journey, if you are a Christian. And I encourage you to pray this prayer as a prayer of renewal in your Christian life. But if you are not a Christian and you'd like to be, this is the kind of prayer you could pray to ask Jesus to start you on that journey away from the old and into the new. So it'll go on the screen. I'll read it for us. Then I'll give you a second to pray it to yourselves and to ponder it. Dear Jesus, I recognize that you are the real thing. I believe that you are the Son of God, the one appointed heir of all things, the one through whom all the universe was made, the exact radiance of God's glory, the sustainer of the world. I believe that you provided purification for our sins, that you are now sitting by the right hand of the Father. I affirm that there is no other and none better.
And in response to those affirmations, we can say, Therefore, I submit myself to you. I ask your forgiveness for my sins and recognize that this forgiveness can only come through you. I ask you for renewal. I ask you to help me move forward in my faith, to help me overcome the lure of the past, the shrinking of fear, and the laziness of immaturity. I renew or begin my dedication to you this day, this day and the last days. In the superior name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Amen.